chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, we'll be picking up in verse 18. Anybody know life coach Tony Robbins? Anybody ever heard that name? A few of you. He's a life coach, which means people pay him to tell them how to live better. And some of those guys and ladies have some really good advice, have some really good strategies, and then some of them don't. I'm not going to give my opinion on Tony Robbins at this moment. But I do want to bring to your attention a quote that you may have heard that you may not know comes from Tony Robbins. He once famously said, Change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Or I've heard it said this way, When the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of... when the Excuse me. <laughs> when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change, you'll change. And so I have heard that, and I've said, well, yeah, that makes sense. If it hurts more to stay as I am rather than to change, then logic says I'll change. But you see, we aren't always logical creatures, are we? You see, his idea is that if something about my life or the way that I'm living is more painful than making a step forward or making a change, I'll naturally change. You see, I disagree with this as a rule. There are some people who do that. There are some people who get so fed up with the way that they're living that they'll change and change to something better. But there are too many people and too many examples of people clinging to their pain over changing for this statement to be a fact. It's probably a a good rule of thumb. It's probably some good advice. But there are too many examples of people hanging on to their pain rather than changing, even if changing would be better. And we see just such an example in our text today. You see, sometimes, brothers and sisters, we idolize our pain. Sometimes we idolize that which is keeping us back. Sometimes we, we idolize the thing that we need to put aside for the sake of health or to take a step forward. And so you see on your notes there, the main idea this morning from the text, Jesus is going to show us that old forms of religion and ritual cannot adequately contain and communicate the good news of Jesus' kingdom. Old forms of religion and ritual cannot adequately contain and communicate the good news of Jesus' kingdom. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll invite you to stand. As we read from our text this morning, we stand to proclaim God's authority in our life from His Word. Stand if you are able. Mark chapter 2, picking up in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, 
and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, we proclaim this is your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and dwell among us now, that you glorify yourself through your word, that you would honor the preaching of your word this day, convict us of sin, call us to righteousness. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I want to look at a few things this morning as you move through this text. And you see the first one on your notes is the issue of fasting. Now, I know fasting is not a totally new idea here. I know, uh, I think Tim has at least led some discussions about it. It usually goes with prayer and fasting. And we see a number of times in the New Testament, the church fasting for various things. And so what is it to fast? We need to ask that question. What does it mean to fast? Well, just the word by itself means a voluntary abstinence from food or from some other thing. Typically, it's something that is a, has a controlling effect in your life. Now, when we fast from food, people fast from food for various reasons. Sometimes it's for health reasons. Sometimes it's to, to get certain sugars or things out of your system. For Christians, we fast from food to remind ourselves that the thing we depend most on in this world isn't our ultimate hope. But to fast means to take a voluntary abstinence from something. Well, what is fasting for? Christian fasting is abstinence, which is normally from from food, for spiritual purposes. So when a Christian says, I am fasting, which the Bible says don't do that, by the way. Don't say you're fasting, otherwise it's no good. Then you're just bragging. But when a Christian enters into a fast, it's for the sake of godliness. It's for the sake of breaking down what I depend on in the world so that I depend more and more upon God. And so sometimes those spiritual purposes that we attach to our fast are for breaking the power of sin. I've heard some people take social media fasts. I don't know if that really falls under the category of a fast, but I can tell you it's good to take a step back from social media from time to time. Sometimes Christians fast over a large decision in their life. You're about to make a big move. You have a big financial decision to make. There's something that's just breaking into your normal reality that you have to make a decision on, and you fast before the Lord for His wisdom. Sometimes we fast over the sickness in someone else's life or in our own life. And sometimes we fast for wisdom. But you see, the Christian fast is a good thing. And we need to say that from up front. Jesus is not condemning the practice of fasting. But he is going to condemn something in particular, and we'll come to that. Now, in the Old Testament... In Leviticus 16, 29-31, which I've listed on your notes, the Old Testament prescribes only one fast, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, when all of Israel would gather together before the temple, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make the atoning sacrifice for the nation. And God called upon His people on that day 
to fast. There's no other fast prescribed in the, New Test- or in, the, in the Old Testament. And so when we meet Jesus in Mark 2, keep in mind that the New Testament doesn't exist yet. And so the Scriptures at that point, which we now call the Old Testament, the Scriptures only taught, only demanded one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But at this point in history, the Pharisees, who were the controlling religious sect of Israel at that time, they had added multiple fasts to the law. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. Last week, we talked about some of their writings and how they made it more difficult to get to God. If you'll recall, in some of their writings on Exodus, they said, don't even go near a sinful person, even if it's to bring them to the law of God. You remember that? So they have added religious practices along the way that the, that the Word of God did not add. You see, at this point in history, the Pharisees fasted twice a week every week. Mondays and Thursdays were for fasting. And so we can assume this is either a Monday or Thursday that Jesus is having this confrontation. But the Pharisees said, if you're, if you're really going to love and honor God, <clears throat> you'll fast, not just on the Day of Atonement once a year, but you will fast every single week on Mondays and on Thursdays in order to be right with God. Now there's an interesting note in the text, if you read in verse 18, it says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So this John here is John the Baptist. And John uh, has left the scene. We're not, we're not around him any longer. But his disciples are still active. And his disciples are still present. And they're carrying on this ascetic lifestyle that John led. And if you recall John the Baptist, he lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair or a leather belt. <clears throat> Excuse me. He ate grasshoppers dipped in honey, and he lived out in the wilderness. And so he lived a very pious, plain, simple life in order to pursue holiness. And as a part of that, he taught fasting. And what we can assume from the life of John the Baptist that we know is that John was fasting for godliness. He was fasting in light of the coming Messiah because he knew he had been called upon to be a voice in the wilderness declaring, prepare the highway of the Lord, if you recall that from Mark chapter 1. So, for some reason, John's disciples here had maybe missed who Jesus was. Now, if you remember back in Mark 1, Mark tells us that some of John's disciples left and followed Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized, but some stayed with him. So, for some reason, John's disciples are fasting. And I'll explain what I, why I mean for some reason in just a moment. But John's disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples come to Jesus during their fast, which tells us something about their, their being willing to say, hey, I'm fasting, I'm being holy. You ever met somebody like that? That comes up to you and says, by the way, I'm a great Christian. All right, maybe it's just me, I've met those people. But that's what they're doing. They've come to this group, to Jesus and his disciples, and they've said, we're fasting, why aren't you? We're being holy, why aren't you? 
We're doing these things over here that are important to God, even though they're not in his word. Why aren't you? And so Jesus asks a question. Verse 19, he says, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, in this day and age, as it is today, weddings are typically a big time of celebration, right? Especially today with the influence of Pinterest and Facebook and seeing how everybody else does it, mine's got to be better, right? But weddings are a big time of celebration where a man and a woman come together along with their family and friends and they celebrate their coming together in marriage and typically there's, there is fancy dress, there's food, there's gifts, there's a celebration. And so what Jesus is saying is it would be entirely inappropriate if you showed up at my wedding looking all somber face and criticizing people for having a good time because this is the time to have a good time. Can you imagine being at a wedding and all the pomp and circumstance going on and then somebody comes in the back saying, why are y'all having this great time? This is a time for fasting. This is a time for being sad and to mourn. You would say, sir or madam, I think you've come to the wrong place. This is a wedding. This is the bride and groom. See how lovely they're dressed. This is the minister who's going to officiate their their wedding. This are the friends and the family. Over here is where we're going to eat and have a great time. Why in the world would you say, I need to fast? And what Jesus is doing is saying that there will come a time to fast, but now is not that time, and now is not that time because I am here. You see, even though he doesn't say it explicitly, Jesus, in saying the bridegroom, he's saying, I'm God. Because maybe you've read on in the Bible, back to Revelation 19, where it gives us a picture of the great wedding feast that Jesus will throw for his bride in heaven. Or maybe you've read the Bible where it talks about how the people of God will be adorned as a bride for their bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here, and what Mark wants you and I, his readers, to see, is that Jesus is saying, the reason the disciples aren't fasting is because Jesus is with them. God himself is with them. And so we fast because we are mourning over sin, or we're, breaking, we're trying to break the power over sin, or we're seeking wisdom. That would be inappropriate in the presence of God, because we have all that we need in God. And so Jesus is teaching not just why his disciples aren't fasting, but he's declaring to the Pharisees that he is in fact a God himself, and he's teaching them something about what is to come. Because Jesus' announcement that his disciples will, that is in the future, they will fast, announces a few things. First, it announces that Jesus isn't always going to be with them. He says, they're not fasting right now because the bridegroom is here. But there's coming a day when I'll be taken away. And in those days, the disciples will fast. And so you and I know... because we've probably read the Gospel of Mark, he's referring, at least in a veiled sense, to his crucifixion. That there's coming a day when Jesus will be taken from his disciples, put to death, 
buried, raised, and then he will ascend back into heaven. Now when that day comes, Jesus says, it will be right and appropriate for my disciples to fast. But he's also showing us something about himself, about his nature. Because do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know what's going to happen this afternoon? You may have some plans. Do you know what's going to happen a few weeks from now? No, you don't. I don't. But Jesus did. Jesus is telling them, something's going to happen in my life that's definite. It's going to happen. And you know who's the only person who can say with certainty what's going to happen in their life? God. And so once again, Mark is showing us that Jesus is in fact God Himself. And so what we see from fasting is not that fasting itself is wrong, but that fasting is the mark of a more settled style of discipleship that came into being after Jesus left. You see, while we look to the disciples, the actual twelve that lived and walked with Jesus, we need to take certain things from their life and apply it to our own lives. But there's one aspect of their life that we just can't, and that's the fact that they saw Jesus face to face. That's the fact that they were with Him in His bodily form on the earth 2,000 years ago. And once He left, the disciples, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, has helped us to understand what discipleship looks like in the long run. And you see, fasting is a part of that. Now, we're not here talking about fasting in an ongoing sense, but what we should see is that Jesus is commanding fasting. He is commanding fasting. And so even the question from the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast, shows they don't understand Jesus. They don't understand anything about Jesus. And so we move on to the second point, which is the change that Jesus brings. We see this in verses 21 and 22. Now Jesus knows, Jesus knows, brothers and sisters, that the Pharisees don't understand. He knows from their question. You see, if you're a mechanic, if you're a mechanic and someone brings you their car and they say, I just think the, uh, the toaster oven part of it is broken. You would know from the get-go that they don't have any clue about cars. I was trying to think of some fancy thing. It wouldn't come to me. Toaster oven is the first thing that popped in my head. But if they asked you to fix the toaster oven under the hood, you would say, you don't know what a car is. And so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus knows you don't have a clue who I am or what I'm about. And so Jesus is going to go on to explain why his presence and why his ministry brings a change. Well, he answers them with two parables. He answers them with two parables. He says, you don't sew an unshrunk patch of cloth onto a, a cloth that's already been pre-shrunk. Because what will happen is, you'll cut it out to fit, and then you'll wash it and dry it, and that cloth patch will shrink, and it will pull away from the other cloth, and the hole will be worse. You don't do that. You don't fix old stuff with new stuff. The car industry does that. You buy a car, you wait five years, you go to the dealership. We don't make that part anymore, sorry. You don't fix old stuff 
<clears throat> with new stuff. And then Jesus gives another example. He says you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, the process of making wine in these days involved the, the, the obtaining of a goat skin, the prepping it into a container, and then they would put the wine directly into it, and while the wine fermented, it would ferment within the skin, and the two would help each other along, so to speak. But the, the skin would expand as the wine fermented, and the gases let off, and then it would be useful. But after some time, that skin would grow dry, it would lose its elasticity, and if you put new wine into that old wineskin, the, the new wine's going to expand, and the old wineskin has already expanded as far as it can. And so when that new wine, which people want, begins to expand, not only does it burst the bag, but the wine itself is lost. And so you don't just have one bad thing, you have two bad things. And Jesus says, this is what my ministry is like. This is the kind of change that I've come to bring. Or to say it like the main idea, the old forms of religion and rituals that the Pharisees were clinging to could not adequately contain and communicate the good news of Jesus' kingdom. One pastor says, to seek to preserve the old by patching it up with what's new is worse than useless. Because what you're doing is not just useless, it's actually causing a problem. It's not just useless to put that new wine into old wineskin. It actually causes the problem of not having either once it bursts. And Jesus' point in these parables is to highlight that the new age of salvation means not just a new way of life, but a new orientation to God. And this would be incompatible with the old. And so Jesus is marking not a reformation of Judaism. He's not saying, I've come to show you how to be better Jews. He's saying, I've come to give you something new altogether. So we need to ask this question, what was the conflict and why did Jesus demand change? What was the conflict? We see the Pharisees were trying to fit Jesus into their prescribed way of doing things. The Pharisees were saying, this is how we go about it. This is how we do it. This is how we think best honors God. And so you need to fit into our way of doing things. But Jesus' ministry cannot be confined within the limits of the Pharisees' practice of Judaism, nor does it fit into their ideal of what it means to be a Jew. And so what we see is Jesus is confronting both their tradition which is this is how we do things, but also their preferences, which is this is what we think is ideal. He's confronting their tradition and their preferences. And so we need to ask, what's the role and the influence of tradition in the lives of mankind? You see, the Pharisees had traditions in their life. They had traditions about how they went about practicing the law. They had traditions about their religion. And so what are traditions? We can define a tradition as a ritual or a custom that strengthens social bonds. You think about what it means to be social, to share life with one another, to share community with one another. Traditions strengthen those things 
It's a place where we experience the sharing of values. We both like this thing. Let's like it a lot together. And let's like it so much together that we do it over and over and over again. And once we fall into tradition, those traditions give us comfort. They give us comfort. And then when they become regular practices, it brings predictability and stability into our lives. So, let's ask why we love them. Sorry about that. Let's ask why we love traditions. Well, we're social creatures. It's part of our bearing God's image. The Bible says from the get-go in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, God made us in His image. We bear His likeness. And God is a social God. He lives in a community with God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And so they share in those things together. And we, bearing His image, are like that. We share that social nature. We also hate chaos. In trying to bring order to chaos, we establish rituals. We establish traditions. And it is through these rituals and traditions that we come to know and relate to one another. Let me say that again. It's through the traditions and the rituals in our lives that we come to know one another. And so the tradition itself or the ritual itself can become the foundation of our relationship. The tradition itself can become the foundation of our relationship. Let me give you an example. Some of you go to the gym. When I was in Gastonia, I went to the YMCA and... I would see people at the YMCA. Oh, yeah, hey, man, how you doing? You know, locker room talk or in the weight room talk. But then once you leave the gym, once you leave that tradition, you don't recognize that person anywhere else in the world. You might see him at Walmart or at the grocery store, and you think, he looks familiar. Where do I know him from? And then you just go on about your day because the tradition isn't occurring. You're not in the environment where you know him. And so you don't speak to him. You see, in that instance, the locker room at the gym is the foundation of my relationship to him. But outside of that, I don't know who he is. That happened to me one time. It was my, it was Eli's barber. And he was cutting Eli's hair. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know this guy. Who is this guy? And then after about three or four trips, I realized, oh, he's the guy that's a few lockers down from me in the locker room. That we talk in the locker room. And I'm thinking, why didn't I know that? It's because I was outside of the tradition that I interacted with him with on a normal basis. One psychologist says that tradition accomplishes four B's in our life. That's the letter B, and I put them for you on your notes. Why is it that we love tradition? And brothers and sisters, we need to ask this question because we are traditional creatures. Not just in this church, but as people. We have traditions. And we need to ask, what do, they, what do they do for us? Well, first one, they give us being. This is a means for us to appreciate ourselves and our strengths and our identity. It's a place for us to know, but also to be known. It's a place for us to be known. Well, the second B is belonging. And by belonging, we find personal comfort of knowing that we're a part of a group. I'm a part of this group, and that gives me a sense of belonging. I feel respected, I feel loved, I feel valued, I belong. The third one is believing. 
Believing, we gain a set of higher principles by which to live our lives. We gain our ethics, our, our understanding of right and wrong. This is not just church, by the way. This can be any group. And then lastly, lastly, we practice benevolence, which means how do I enhance the lives of others? Sometimes we enhance through giving of money. Sometimes we enhance through the sharing of friendship. Sometimes we enhance through sitting with people in the midst of grief. But tradition gives us a chance to enhance the lives of others and have our lives enhanced by those very same people. We see another study defines rituals and traditions as things or activities that are structured, formal, and repetitive. You see, the Pharisees said that once a year fast that God says we should do is not enough. We're actually going to make it twice a week. A hundred and four times a year, and then add the one that God requires, and that's a hundred and five. And to disobey that, was to disobey the Pharisees. It was to keep yourself from God in their minds. And so it was something structured and rigid and repetitive. And when it falls into that, it tends to be the same, time, same way every single time. And because of doing it the same way, those rituals and traditions typically require obedience. If you don't do it the way that we've always done it, you're wrong. And so in the the minds of the Pharisees, in the minds of those who are so founded or so grafted into their traditions, if you don't stick to the script, you've gone off. And so you see, strict adherence to the rules of the tradition is often tied to the fact that the tradition gives us all those things that we want. You see, by being a Pharisee, which was itself a tradition... By being a Pharisee, that gave them social standing, it gave them prestige, it gave them access to God in their minds, even though they had no idea they were violating God's word. They become the foundation and identity of our relationships. They do something for us. Our traditions do something for us. They meet needs, they serve us, they give us things. But you see, when rituals and traditions take hold of our lives, we typically begin to think of them as sacred. We start to think of them as sacred. We give them the weight of law. To not do them is to sin. To break them is not just different, it's wrong. And that's the mindset that we typically fall into. That's the mindset where we see the Pharisees. You see, God's Word never said that the disciples had to fast twice a week. But the Pharisees decided that all good Christians should fast twice a week. And so when Jesus wasn't, they said, you're wrong. They didn't just say, you're different. And so let's, let's ask, what are some of the established traditions in our lives, or the areas where we establish traditions? Well, the first one is church. We establish traditions in church. We establish traditions in our families, in our workplaces, in our personal lives. We have national traditions as a country. Some traditions become such a part of our lives that we cannot think of losing them. But you see, some traditions are good. Some traditions are necessary. 
Some of them serve a distinct purpose. See, some of the traditions of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Godliness. But some traditions, however, we just hold on to out of preference. Some traditions we just hold on to out of preference. And we treat them as sacred scripture, brothers and sisters, when they just aren't. This was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. They had made one of their traditions into something sacred and had attached the weight of God's law to it. And they treated it as if God said it when in fact He had not. Furthermore, they so loved their traditions that they ended up rejecting Jesus over their traditions. Like the patch and the old wineskin, Jesus didn't fit with their traditions. And instead of evaluating their traditions, they rejected Jesus. So as we come to our reflection and application, we need to see that Jesus is calling us to see Him as our source of joy and tradition. You see, as we engage with this scripture, we must not settle for merely condemning the Pharisees. Why couldn't they see? Of course Jesus was better than their tradition. You see, it would be easy to pass judgment on them while never considering what Jesus is saying to you and I. And so we need to ask this question, are there areas of our lives where we are guilty of valuing traditions over Jesus? Are there areas of our lives where we are guilty of valuing traditions over Jesus? Perhaps it's something within the church. A tradition that we've grown to love and cannot think of doing without. Would you willingly give up that tradition for the sake of Christ? Maybe it's an activity, a way of doing something, a physical place or a classroom or a group of people. Would you willingly give those things up for the sake of Christ if they were in violation of Christ? We would like to think, if Jesus were to ask me, I would certainly give it up. If Jesus were to look me in the face and say, this violates my word, this violates my mission, will you give that up? Well, yes, sir, I will. We like to think that way. But, How often are we bringing our traditions to the Word of God and saying, does this honor God? You see, we like to think, if Jesus came to me, I'd I'd get on board. But how often are we going to God through His Word and saying, does my life, do my practices, do my traditions honor God? Not just do they honor God, do they carry out His mission in the way that He says His mission should be carried out? The second question we need to ask is, are we allowing Jesus and the Bible to be our source of tradition? Not just are we establishing traditions and asking, do they honor God? Are we allowing God's Word to establish our traditions? Well, what does that look like? Well, in Acts 2, 42-47, we see what the traditions of the church should be. This is not exhaustive. But it's pretty all-inclusive. We see that the traditions of the church should include right teaching of the Bible, genuine gospel fellowship, 
Regular communion, that's the Lord's Supper. Corporate and private prayer. Being together regularly. Meeting each other's needs. Evangelizing the lost. Being godly. And planting churches. Those are the traditions that we see established in the New Testament church. Those are the traditions that Jesus says, these are perfectly in line with my word. You see, these are the things that Jesus intends for us to establish those four B's in our life. Of being, belonging, believing, and benevolence. Jesus intends that these things are established through the gospel and his local church. These are not, however, the only traditions we can have. And we need to be careful to always ask, do our traditions match Jesus' traditions? One pastor noted, the church is always reforming. The church is always reforming. Meaning this, a healthy church is always evaluating its practices and traditions and asking, is this communicating the gospel most effectively? See, none of us will be established. This church will never be established or finished or in its final form until it goes to be with King Jesus. And until that time, God will sustain His church in a culture that's ever-changing. And what we have to do, brothers and sisters, is to ask the question regularly, are we most effectively communicating the unchanging message of the gospel in an ever-changing society? You see, the Pharisees were unwilling. Our way or the highway, Jesus. And so as I bring this to a close, I'll ask this question. Are we guilty of holding on to our tattered clothing and our old wineskins over honoring and glorifying King Jesus? Are we doing that? That's a question, brothers and sisters, that we need to wrestle with. It's a question that Jesus puts to us from His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is pointed and sharp sometimes. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would help us to honestly grapple with these words. You would help us to honestly wrestle with these questions. Are we valuing things over Jesus? Well, I pray that we would be a church given fully to the mission of God in the world, to honoring and glorifying and loving King Jesus through all that we say and all that we do. We want the traditions of our church, King Jesus, to be those of right preaching, of sharing in communion, of praying together, of gospel mission, of gospel fellowship, of seeing the lost saved, of seeing churches established. Lord, I pray that you would give to us a rich and sweet community with one another, founded on the gospel alone. Lord, I pray that we would be effective and driven to communicate the gospel
the unchanging message of the gospel to an ever-changing culture that is lost and dying. Lord, we pray these things in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip our last song. Uh, Sorry, friend. Um, I do want to make note...